Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with this week's host, Helen Hillix. I'm Todd Benton, your co-host. Today's topic, join black jazz musician and actor Daryl Davis as he shares how he helped over 200 KKK members leave the Klan. Daryl Davis could have ended up like so many celebrity musicians, focusing on indulging himself and making money, but not Daryl. He decided, as a Southern black man, to take on the Ku Klux Klan one member at a time. Join us for his inspiring and courageous story of how he loaned his tour bus to the Klan and invited them into his home. Find out how Daryl's warmth and passion helped to transform hundreds of KKK members and inspire them to revoke their memberships. What prompted him to take this on? How did he feel facing these men and women who professed to hate his whole ethnic group? What has he learned about himself and what has he learned about humanity in the process? Daryl exemplifies the core principles of the inner revolution, oneness, accountability, and mutual support. Call in and join the conversation. And now, here's Helen. Hi, welcome everybody. Welcome, Daryl. We're so happy to have you. I do have a couple of inter-revolutionary news articles today. Both of them happen to be from Fast Company newsletter. One of them, our uh, co-host Todd sent in, and it's really fascinating. The the title is, Will the Third Industrial Revolution Create an Economic Boom That Saves the Planet? And the, the heading is about Jeremy Rifkin's thinking about how to build a clean energy-powered, automation-filled future is inspiring major infrastructure plans in Europe and China. Can his new Vice documentary convince American business leaders to buy in? And that pretty much says it all, you know, is that that uh, we need something, an industrial revolution to change the way we look at our economy and our world. And he's talking in this article about how the, the, the economies are slowing down because they just can't keep ma- mass producing as much as they had and things are changing. And so he's talking about how, you know, an infrastructure change that, uh, is based on the last seven major economic paradigm shifts in history that they all share a common denominator. At that moment in time, they had three defining technologies emerge and then converge to create an infrastructure that fundamentally changes how we manage power and move economic activity across the value chains. So it's very fascinating you know he's talking about of course how the railroad and oil and things you know happened in the past to change the way we did things and then how the internet and renewable energy is what we need for today's industrial revolution and he's talking about how places like china are investing billions of dollars in trying to do just this and i'm certainly hopeful that the United States and other Western countries will catch the idea and and take it and run because we need to do something. And it definitely connects to the inner revolution in that it, you know, the renewable energies and the and the free Wi-Fi everywhere for everybody, you know, the ideas that he proposes are definitely in support of the oneness and accountability, excuse me, accountability 
in terms of its impact on the whole world. You know, we cannot have an, another industrial revolution based on oil. You know, it's got to be based on renewable energy and mutual support in that the things that he's talking about would be for the highest good of all so that everyone has access to the Internet. Everyone has access to information and education and everyone has access to renewable energy. So that was a very exciting idea and one that I, like I said, I really hope that catches on. I don't know if you had anything to add to that, Todd, since you were the person who... No, you covered it pretty well. I've been looking for the documentary. It just uh, premiered at the, I'm not sure if, how you say, the, the borough of New York, Tribeca. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Tribeca <laughs> Film Festival. And um, so I think it's going to be released soon, but I've, I've been looking for it. I really want to see that. And it'll be fascinating to see if that can have an impact. Um, you know, we need inspiring stories. Um, and we've heard a lot. I mean, even what Elon Musk is doing with Solar City and now the solar panels that can be easily replacing roof tiles. I mean, there's a lot that's happening, but we need to see the uh, connectedness of it all together to really catch the uh, inspiration and the vision. So yes. we can mobilize our you know, our governments and businesses to take it on. It doesn't look like the government at this moment is really uh, going in that direction. In fact, you know, given what Trump's saying, it's doubling down on, you know, fossil fuels and the old energies. But I don't know if the market is really going to go for that. So we'll see. Well, and I love what you're saying that um, it's talking in the article about how it's moving the the, uh, power out of the hands of the few and into the hands of the many. Yes. And, you know, that is another very important aspect of it, why we thought it was an interrevolutionary article, because it moves it out of the corporate hands and into the hands of the masses, where every building, per, for instance, every building in the whole city would be independent because they would have solar panels for their, uh, for their electricity, and they wouldn't have to depend on, you know, the corporations that, jack up your prices and so forth so it's a great equalizer too the way Jeremy Rifkin talks about it the revolution would be a great equalizer Um, you know this is kind of unrelated but I read some other story I think it was on Facebook and I don't remember what it was but a a Nobel laureate economist whose name I can't remember at the moment but he was talking about how uh, moving the resources into the hands of the many is actually going to stimulate the economy more than having it in the hands of the few. And that this is a new economic strategy that people used to say was not true, but that that now he says we've got to get the word out because it really is true that the more equality there is, the, the better the economy is and the more productivity. So I thought that was related to. And then The other article is also from Fast Company, and the title is These Environmental Heroes Stood Up to Corporate Interests and Won. And it's all about a young Hispanic man in East L.A. and an old lady in Australia who's 83 years old and how they stood up to, you know, in the L.A. story, they stood up to a company that had been poisoning the community for uh, like 60 years um, because they had a, a... a battery dump there and Exide Technologies it was called and uh, this young man Mr. Lopez uh, stood up to that company and he won a prize 
the 2017 Goldman Environmental Prize uh, for doing so, for taking on that company and, and making the state of California penalize them and clean up all of that for the neighborhood. And the lady in Australia is refusing to sell her 16 and a half acres uh, for the third time. She was forced twice before to sell her property to the coal mining. And uh, this third time she is, for some reason, she's able to refuse now. And she's just spending the rest of her life fighting against, and they say that she has blocked 16 and a half million tons of coal from being mined. So I thought that was really an exciting interrevolutionary story too, to, you know, the power of the individual that people say, well, what can I do? But there are things that each one of us individually can do. And I think that brings us right to Daryl Davis. So um, I really want to welcome you, Daryl, to our show. And you are a beacon of light in terms of what one individual can do. Well, thank you very, very much. I'm very pleased to be here with you. You know, you mentioned uh, Tribeca. I was just up there last week uh, where I received an award from the Tribeca Film Festival. It's called the Disruptive Innovation Award. <laughs> I uh, love that. But um, a dozen oh, other cool. people. Say that again. I missed the last part of what you said. I, along with about a dozen other people, received awards, uh, Disruptive Innovation Awards, for the work that uh, that we've done in our various uh, fields. Oh, awesome! Well, congratulations. You certainly deserve it. Thank you. Um, I'd like I'd like to start out, Daryl, with you telling us a little bit. You know, just to catch our listeners up about the you know your your life history and and what led you to these ultimately momentous choices that you made to try and relate and connect to the KKK. But you know, let's hear about your life prior to that, and then tell us about that. Okay. Well, I just turned fifty nine years of age. And I was born in Chicago. My parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up quite a bit overseas as an American embassy brat. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so back in the 1960s, you know, I did, you know, you you get assigned to a country for two years, and then you return home here to the States. So every two years, um, I was overseas. And, um, you know, from from, uh, elementary school, you know, on to the beginning of uh, junior high. Um, Over there, my classes were filled with other kids from other countries, Nigeria, Japan, Russia, France, Germany, Sweden, you name it. If if those embassies, uh, if, if those countries had embassies where we were stationed, all of the kids went to the same school. So that's the environment in which I grew up. At the same time that I was being, I guess what you would call today, multicultural, my peers back home here in the States, my own country, were either going to newly integrated schools or still segregated ones. And there was not the amount of diversity uh, that we had overseas in the classroom. Over here, it was just either all black kids or black and white kids, depending upon whether you were uh, seeing the uh, integrated class or the so segregated school, so I, you know, I, when I was overseas, I was literally living about twelve to fifteen years ahead of my time, because right. that scenario had yet to come to this country. Today, when you walk into a high school or middle school or what have you, it, it looks like a little United Nations, and and that is still relatively new for this country. 
I was living that back in the 60s overseas. So I was already prepared for it. And I could not understand how my my fellow students back home, um, you know, were, were unaccustomed to that. You know, when, when you're a kid and, and you do different things with your parents, you think that all kids do that. Because all the kids that you're associated with, at least in the embassy, you know, we all did pretty much, you know, the same things. So right. just as a kid, you know, your perspective is, oh, you know, every kid does this. Yeah, this so is natural. Yeah, exactly. Because you know, that's all you know. And so I didn't realize that, you know, I, I would be sitting in my geography or history class back home here in the States. And, you know, I began to realize that, that the closest um, the people sitting at the desk ne- uh, next to me would ever come to the Eiffel Tower or the Berlin Wall or the pyramids or things like that were the books, or, you know, I mean, were the pictures in our textbooks. I had been to those things. I've been inside them. I've stood three feet from the Mona Lisa. I've been inside the Sphinx, the pyramids, the Eiffel Tower. I've touched the Berlin Wall. And, you know, back then, I just took it for granted because, you know, I thought all kids did it. But uh, when I realized that uh, all kids did not do that, then I began to appreciate it a lot more. And so I was a little, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like I'm better than anybody else. I'm certainly not. But I had more experiences and more exposure than many of my peers back home. Right, you were fortunate. Very fortunate, very fortunate. And so I was already prepared for, for diversity, whereby some were not. But I was still naive because I did not realize the, the racism that existed. Well, one day in 1968, it hit me figuratively and literally right in the face. Uh, I had joined the Cub Scouts because a lot of guys in my class in fourth grade, I was age 10 in 1968, uh, were Cub Scouts, and they invited me to join. And this was in a place called Belmont, Massachusetts, which was a suburb, which still is a suburb of Boston. And I, you know, at my school, at my elementary school, I was one of two black kids in the entire school. There was a little girl in second grade and me in the fourth grade. So consequently, most of my friends were, were white, uh, fourth and fifth grade boys and girls. Well, these boys who were members of the Cub Scouts invited me to join. And so I joined, and I was the only black scout in the area. And one day there was this parade with the Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, and Brownies, I think the 4-H Club and some other organizations were doing this parade uh, from Lexington to Concord, Massachusetts, walking to commemorate the ride of uh, Paul Revere. And my den mother of, of my uh, Cub Scout troop, you know, let me carry the American flag. And as I was marching down the uh, street, the streets were blocked off, and both sides, uh, both sidewalks on either side of the street were lined with uh, predominantly white spectators waving flags and cheering. Somewhere down this parade route, I began getting hit with uh, bottles, soda pop cans, um, debris from the street, pebbles, rocks, whatever. And I was very naive. Uh, my, my first thought was, oh, you know, those people over there don't like the scouts. It was just a small group of, of white people, um, maybe, maybe four or five. I, I do remember there being a couple kids and a couple adults, but I couldn't tell you the exact number because, I mean, everybody there was white, but just one particular group along the parade route were, you know, were uh, throwing things. And I'm thinking, you know, these people don't like the scouts. Uh, I did not realize that I was the only scout 
getting hit until my den mother, my cub master, my troop leader, my pack leader all came running back and uh, shielded me with their bodies to escort me out of the danger. And when I realized that I was the only one getting this treatment um, by, by my, uh, my, my, my leaders, it was then that I realized, you know, uh, nobody else was getting hit. And I questioned, I said, why, you know, what, what's going on here? And all they would, would say is, you know, they would kind of shush me and say, move along, Daryl, move along, it'll be okay. So they never answered my question as to why I was being singled out. And being 10 years old and never having experienced anything like this, I had to have answers. So I began making up answers to placate my own curiosity. I began thinking, well, maybe it's because I'm the new kid on the block. You know, I'd only been there a couple months. Uh, so maybe that's why they're picking on me. They're, they're just testing me because I'm new. I, I had every excuse except the real one. So when I got home, uh, my mother and father, who were not at the march, were putting mercurochrome and alcohol and Band-Aids on me, you know, getting me all cleaned up and asking me, you know, how did I fall down and get all scraped up? I told them that I did not fall down. I explained exactly what happened. And for the first time in my life, my parents sat me down and explained to me why I was being hit. And it was this thing that I'd never in my life heard of. They used a word that I heard for the first time that day. The word was racism. I had no clue what they were talking about. Wow. I heard that word overseas. I, and I'd only been back a couple months, you know, back to the States. Um, and I'd never heard the word around, you know, around here either. Uh, so, you know, when they were explaining it to me, I really couldn't get my head around it because I'd been around people from all over the world. Um, and nobody had treated me like that. And these kids uh, and adults on the sidewalk did not look any different to me than my white friends overseas, whether they were my little French friends, my little Australian friends, Swedish friends, German friends, uh, or their parents, or, or, my, or for that matter, my, my white American friends, either from the embassy or the ones here in my class, in my classroom in uh, Belmont, Massachusetts, or their parents, who all treated me rather well uh, for the you most know- you know so, what I like about what you're saying, Daryl, uh, is that it's amazing, like you were saying, how naive you were in one way, but in another way, it points out how absolutely absurd racism is. Absolutely. That, that, that your intelligent mind could not even make sense out of it because it's so absurd. Well, it, it, it was, you're right, it was so absurd you know, I don't know how, how intelligent my mind is, but my intelligent mind told me that, that for whatever reason, my parents were lying, that they were not telling me the truth. Because it, to, to me, there has to be a reason to go strike somebody, to inflict pain upon somebody. And, and this pain was coming from people who had never seen me before, people who had never spoken to me, people who knew nothing about me. So... There was no justification for anybody uh, launching an attack on me, and that's what I could not get my head around. So well, I began, I began thinking that my parents were not telling me the truth. I didn't know why they were trying to pull a joke on me, but they were definitely not telling me the truth. Well, you know what? I I really think, Daryl, that that the way you were raised made you perhaps singularly uh, prepared 
to do the work that you later did with the KKK because, again, your whole worldview did not include that kind of horrible racist hatred. And you knew in your bones that it didn't belong. It it didn't make sense. And at the same time, Daryl, you didn't carry that bitterness that some children who've been subjected to that and, you know, whose parents talked about it and and talked about the pain of it and so forth, you know, and what, that makes some people be bitter and defensive, you didn't have that. That's, that's very true. That's very true. And, you know, perhaps, you know, if I had, um, if I did have it, maybe I would not have done the work. Exactly. Uh, you know, that, I, that I've done. Exactly. But because I was exposed to a lot of good people prior to this experience, um, I could not then pass judgment on those people who resembled the ones you know who who attacked me. Does that what make do you sense? mean? Well, when you say who resembled, well, you know, I mean, you, you got people oh. over here who who may have you know, let's say, a bad experience with uh, with a, with a white person. Or a bad, uh, you know, a black person who has a bad experience with a white person, or a white person who has a bad experience with a black person, or or we've been attacked uh, by a, a small group of Muslims, but yet we paint the whole uh, religion as being uh, terrorist, you know, or people paint all blacks as being, you know, uh, whatever because of the actions of one, or or some white person did something to one black person, and then he he hates the entire white. Uh, population, um, right. because because you know you, you it, it resembles that like you know a, a lot of a lot of black people uh, are not uh, happy with police officers, uh, and 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 for good reason, okay. Right. But but we can't you know. But as soon as you see a, a a police officer, yes, you know many of us have that visceral reaction like, uh oh, you know, am I going to get shot or beat up today? Right. You know, okay. But we need to stop and say, whoa, you know, hold right. on, you know, let's. Let's judge this individual by her, by his or her interaction with us before we start, you know, casting aspersions. Right, and you know, I I really like what you're saying there, and I think it's so critical. It's such you a know, critical. I, I'll tell you, Helen. One of one of my favorite quotes uh, of all time comes from uh, Mark Clemens, better known to most of us as uh, as um, I mean, not Mark Clemens, uh, Samuel Clemens, better known as uh, Mark Twain. And let me read this quote to you. It says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. (laughs) Absolutely. But, you know, I'm thinking... The message that you're that you're emphasizing right this moment is such an amazingly important message that we need right now, which is we have to relate. We have to relate and get over our judgments and our opinions, even if we have been hurt by that same person, you know, five minutes ago. We still have to be able and willing to push through our own judgments and resentments and relate to that person as a person in pain or a person in need or whatever. And, you know, I just am so uh, admiring of the fact that because of your upbringing and because 
the of the forethought of your parents. I mean, they must have thought about this that they did not want to teach you about racism earlier, because well, I, I would imagine I would imagine your parents were subject to racism. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, on, on one hand, um, I wish they had prepared me for it, but on the other hand, I can see you know why they shielded me from it. Because, you know, it, it is a very painful thing. And I guess, you know, you would not want, you know, I don't have children of my own biologically. But um, I, I guess, you know, no, no parent would want their child to, you know, to, to go through something, you know, hurtful, be it whether it's emotional hurt or physical hurt. And you would try to protect that child from any, any such doing. But I think they also must have thought about it in terms of how do we want Daryl to feel about himself as a black man? You know, how do we yeah. want him to yeah. feel about himself? You know, we don't want to expose him to racism and the fact that some people have this prejudice that blacks are inferior in some way because of some ridiculous notion. We don't even want him to think that way. And you're you're I, absolutely, you're yeah. absolutely right because as a child, I was told by, you know, I'm an only child. My, you know, my, my, my folks got it right the first time. Um, I was told that I could do anything. I could become anything I want to be. Uh, and I was told this as a child. And then, of course, you know, as I grew older and began to see, you know, uh, things, you know, weren't quite equal, uh, you know, then I was told, well, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard as uh, as white people to even be uh, considered approaching equal. But you knew. I mean, that's, again, I just want to commend your parents. You had that sense inside you that no matter the adversity that you were facing, you had a faith in yourself that came from those early years. So yes, yes. I just think I just think that's a really critical characteristic that you developed that enabled you and the and the open heartedness that it developed in you that you wouldn't even think that those people were throwing stones and bottles at you because of the color of your skin. You wouldn't even think of that helped you to then, you know, take on people like the KKK. So I'd like to move forward and, and have you talk to us about, about that phase and how all of these youthful experiences led to that. Okay. Well, shortly, like I said, you know, that experience was, was really my first encounter with that kind of thing that was new to me called uh, racism. And um, shortly thereafter, like uh, within, in less than two months later, um, on April 4th, that same year, 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I, I, you know, I, was, I was alive, I was 11 years old at this point. Um, I, I just turned 11 and um, I saw Boston nearby town burned to the ground. I saw the rioting. Uh, you know, we drove down to Boston to pick up some of my friends who lived there, my little friends, and bring them out to Belmont so that so that they would be safe. Uh, I saw people fighting and breaking out windows and setting things on fire and all that. And then on TV, you would see the same thing in almost every major city in the country. Uh, Detroit, my hometown, Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles. Etc. Uh, the 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 country was burning to the ground, and and it was all over this thing called racism. So while I didn't understand how someone could judge somebody else by the color of their skin, it was at that point that I realized 
that my parents had told me the truth. You know, they had not lied about why I was being hit. I just didn't right. know why people felt that way. Right. So I formed a question in my mind at that age, uh, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And then for the next uh, 48, 49 years, I've been looking for the answer. Uh, shortly thereafter, the, uh, at the end of that summer of, of 68, uh, we returned back overseas on assignment to another country. And once, and once again, I was around what I called uh, normalcy. You know, the, the term multicultural did not exist back then. Um, I was around, you know, back in that embassy environment with kids from all over the world. To me, that was just the norm. Um, and there were never any problems. We, you know, we might not have spoken the same languages, but at least we, we knew how to get along. We worked together. We played together, had slumber parties together, all that kind of stuff. So never had any problems. But every time I'd come home, there would be some racial issue that would happen with me. And so that just reinvigorated my, my quest to find out, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? I began collecting books on uh, black supremacy, white supremacy, the Ku Klux Klan, anti-Semitism, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here. But none of those books had, had any answers uh, that were satisfactory to me that explained why people felt that way. And there were no courses you know, offered in schools you know, that you could take, like Race 101 or whatever. You know, that's still not even offered. Um, so I, 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 I didn't have the answer, and people couldn't answer the question for me. So later on in my adulthood, um, I thought, you know, who better to ask a, uh, such a question to than someone who would join an organization whose whole premise is hating those who do not look like them and those who do not believe as they believe. So why not find some members of the KKK and sit them down and ask them point blank? You know, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? So that's what put me on that quest. And, and, and were you a young man at that point? Um, I had just uh, graduated college. I graduated college in 1980. And um, I had I'd, I'd been, you know, thinking about that. You know, how could I find out? Well, lo and behold, about three years later, uh, I was in a, I, I majored in music. And, and I've been playing music full time ever since I graduated. Uh, college uh, with my degree in, in, uh, in music. I've been fortunate to, to be able to, to, to make a living doing that. And in 1983, uh, country music had made a comeback. Um, there had been a movie out called Urban Cowboy. and had this right. mechanical bull and all these line dances. Right, right. Yeah. So all the bars that were playing uh, disco and Top 40 and R&B and whatever else, they switched over to country. So... Uh, if you know, if you want to work full time in the industry, you you play country music at that point. So I joined a country band, and I was the only black guy in the band. Uh, consequently, the only black guy in many of the places where we would perform. Um, we played at a place in a in uh, Frederick, Maryland, called the Silver Dollar Lounge. Frederick, Maryland, is about forty miles outside of uh, Washington D.C., just north in in oh. Maryland. And, my, uh, my wife's uh, relatives live there. How funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, if you tell the story to your wife's relatives, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And um, Frederick was, was a hub for clan activity. And uh, anyway, the Silver Dollar Lounge 
it was this uh, truck stop lounge because it was a, like a truck stop plaza where they had a restaurant, a mechanic bay, and a motel for truckers, you know, coming through town down the highway. And in the bottom of the motel was this lounge, the Silver Dollar Lounge. Well, the lounge was what you would call an all-white lounge. And I don't mean that there were signs, you know, saying all white, you know, no blacks allowed, anything like that. It wasn't that blacks uh, could not go in there. It was that blacks did not go in there. And that was by their own choice because they were made to feel not welcome uh, when they were there. So here I was in this uh, lounge and the band had played there many times before, before I, I had joined the band. So, you know, they were familiar with it and they were all white and there was never any problems with them. So here I am in there. And um, for the first time, and I came off the bandstand uh, on the first break after the first set. And I was walking across the dance floor to go sit at a table with some of my bandmates when this uh, white gentleman came up from behind and put his arm around my shoulder and, and expressed how much he enjoyed uh, the music I was playing. And I turned around, I shook his hand and thanked him. And he pointed towards the bandstand and said, you know, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you before. Where did you come from? And I said, well, yeah, the band had played here before, but I just recently joined them, and this is my first time. And he reiterated how much he liked the music. And then he said, um, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano, like Jerry Lee Lewis. And I wasn't offended, but I was kind of surprised that, you know, because, again, you know, I'm naive. I think everybody knows what I know. And um, I'm thinking, well, doesn't this guy know? The origin of uh, of Jerry Lee's style. Really, <laughs> I innocently, you know, I wasn't trying to be facetious, but I, I innocently asked him. I said, "Well, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play?" And he says, "What are you talking about?" And I said, "Well, Jerry Lee learned that style from black blues and boogie woogie piano players. That's where that rockabilly rock and roll style of piano playing came came from." Oh, no, 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 no. Jerry Lee invented that. I had never heard no black man play piano like that except for you. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, this guy obviously has never, you know, seen or heard uh, Little Richard or Fast Dominic. Right, right. It's the same kind of style. And um, I explained to the guy, no, no, no. Jerry Lee got that from black people, the same place where I got it from. And uh, I went on to say that I knew Jerry Lee Lewis personally. And he's told me himself where he learned how to play. And the guy didn't buy it. He didn't buy that I knew Jerry Lee. He didn't buy that Jerry Lee learned anything from black people. But he was fascinated with me, and he wanted to buy me a drink. I don't drink alcohol, but I agreed to go back to his table and have a cranberry juice. So I walk back there with him, and he orders my cranberry juice from the waitress. And uh, when it comes, he uh, takes his glass and clinks mine and cheers me. And then he announces that this is the first time he's ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And I'm just, you know, now I'm like really curious, like, you know, what's going on here? You know why This guy you know, is like in his maybe mid-40s, and I'm 25 years old in 1983. And in my 25 years on the face of this earth, I had sat down with literally thousands of white people and had a, a beverage, a meal, a conversation. And this guy is like, you know, 20-some years older than me, and he's never sat down with a black guy before. So again, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking race. Not at all, you know. I'm completely naive, and and I'm curious. I just said, why? And at first he didn't answer me, and I questioned him again, and he had a friend sitting next to him, and his buddy elbowed him in the side and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And I said, tell me. And, you know, like, you know, there's some major secret going on here. So he looked back at me, 
And he wasn't smiling. He was just plain as day. He said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, then I burst out laughing. And I wasn't laughing like, like I was nervous. I was laughing because I thought it was funny. I thought, I thought he was joking with me. You know, I, I couldn't, you know, un- understand, you know, why he would make such a joke. Because, like I said, I knew a lot about the Klan. I have every book written on the Klan. And in none of my books does it talk about how a Klansman will come up to a black musician, put his arm around his shoulder, embrace him, and want to buy him a drink and hang out. It doesn't work that way. So I knew the guy was kidding. Well, while I was laughing, he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through it, and then hands me his Klan membership card. And I take it and I look at it, and I recognize the Ku Klux Klan insignia, this uh, red circle with a white cross and red blood drop in the center, and I stop laughing because I recognize this thing as being for real. And I gave it back to him. And, you know, we, we talked about the Klan and, and a few other things, um, but he gave me his phone number and wanted me to call him Anytime I was to return to this bar with this band, because he wanted to bring his friends, his friends meaning clansmen and clanswomen, to see this black guy play piano like Jerry Lee. That just fascinated him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so crazy. That is so wild. My gosh. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. I'm telling you. Yeah. So, that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Exactly. And so I'd call him, and uh, you know, every six weeks. You know, when the band was there for the weekend, I'd call him on a Wednesday or Thursday and say, hey, man, you know, we're playing over the Silver Dollar. Come on out. He'd come with uh, Klansmen and Klanswomen, and uh, they would gather around the bandstand and watch me play and then get out there on the dance floor and dance. And then on the break, usually I would go to his table to, you know, say hello, see how he's doing and stuff. Uh, some of the Klan people would stay there because they were curious and they wanted to meet me and talk to me. And then the others will kind of scurry away when they saw me coming. It's like, you know, we don't want anything to do with you. We, we, we just want to watch you. We just observe you. So, you know, that was fine. So some I met, some I didn't meet. But um, that lasted till about the end of 1983. And I, went, I, went, I quit that band, went back to playing rock and roll and whatever was going on in 1984. But then it occurred to me, you know, a couple of years later, because, you know, I, I, I didn't keep in contact with the guy because, I mean, I really had no reason. But then it occurred to me, you know what? The opportunity fell right in my lap. I should have asked him, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? But he had never expressed expressed any hate to me. So it it didn't occur to me to ask him. But I thought, you know, he would be the perfect person to uh, to ask and, and get this understanding. I'm going to write a book on the Klan. I'm going to go around the country, up north, down south, the Midwest, the West, and interview various Klan leaders and Klan members. I'm going to start right here in Maryland, where I live. I'm going to get that guy from the Silver Dollar Lounge, who I haven't seen in a few years, to get me started and hook me up with the Klan leader for the state of Maryland. A state leader is known as a Grand Dragon. A national leader is known as an Imperial Wizard. So, like, you know, we would call our national leader the President. Uh, and they call theirs the Imperial Wizard. We call our state leader the governor. They call theirs the uh, Grand Dragon. So anyway, I'm going to get this guy to hook me up. So um, I tracked down the guy's number. Hadn't seen him in a few years. And uh, the number had been disconnected. Took me a couple weeks to track him down. Turns out he moved. And um, he he, he didn't have a phone, but he had a new address. But I managed to get the address, but there was no way for me to contact him to let him know I wanted to come by. So I just drove over to this address, 
and uh, he, he lived in, in uh, an apartment. So I went up to his floor, went down to his down the hall to his apartment, and I knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and he says, "Daryl, what are you doing here?" And he stepped out into the hallway and looked, and looked up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody with me. And when he stepped out of his apartment, I I stepped in. So he turned around and came back in. And he says, what's going on, man? Are you still playing? I said, yeah, 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 I'm still playing. But listen, I need to talk to you about the clan. And this is where the whole thing started. I convinced him to put me in contact with the leader of the clan for the state of Maryland. He didn't want to do it. Uh, I had to, you know, beg and plead with him to give me this person's uh, personal phone number and address. And he warned me, you know, for me not to, to go to this guy's house. This guy would kill me, et cetera, et cetera. And he told me about a place I could go where this guy hung out uh, or where I would hang out, you know, on Saturday nights if he was in town. So I did go up there one time, but I didn't go there on a Saturday. I went there on a Sunday. And he had been there, but he wasn't there, you know, when, when I was there. So this Grand Dragon. So um, I, uh, I, gave, I gave the number to my secretary and had her call him and set up an interview. But I specifically told my secretary, do not tell him that I'm black. If he asks, don't lie to him, but don't give him reason to ask. Because, I mean, if he hates me that much, he's going to kill me or something. He probably won't sit down and give me an interview either. So right. I, I want him to agree to the interview. And then when he arrived, um, he, he would see that I'm black, obviously. And then he could you know, make up his mind right there and then, you know, what he was going to do. Was he going to attack me? Was he going to refuse the interview and walk away? Or was he going to, you know, sit down and do the interview? I want him to, to, to face me and make his decision. So my secretary was, was white. And um, I, I had her call. I could have called myself because I'm the one who got the number. But I didn't want to call him uh, for fear that he might detect in my voice that I'm black and say, I'm not talking to you, and then hang up the phone. And my whole project would have ended before it ever got started. So I knew that if he uh, were to hear this woman's voice on the phone, he would know automatically that she's white, and he would not, because I knew a lot about the, about the Klan mentality, he would not automatically assume that this white woman was working for a black man, especially a black man who's writing a book on the, on the Ku Klux Klan, because they didn't exist. My book is the first book ever written by a black author on the Klan, from the perspective of sitting down face to face and talking with them. Tell us, two, tell us the title of your book and how people uh, can get it. The book is called Clandestine, and Clandestine is spelled with a K, not right. a C. Clandestine Relationships. And right now, it's, uh, it came out in 97. Uh, it's out of print. I'm updating it now. It'll be back out towards the end of the year. Okay, cool. Thank you. So, so let's fast forward to the, the time when you were talking about... Uh, having the clan members come into your home we've only got you know like 10 more minutes and i don't want to i don't want to uh spend too much time on the this part of it even though i'm fascinated to hear the whole story i want to talk about when you agreed to loan them guess we'll have to read your book <laughs> exactly exactly okay, well, what happened basically was you know I, i've been interviewing this uh, this leader he'd gone from grand dragon to, uh, to, to a national leader, Imperial Wizard. And uh, he lived up there in Frederick County. Um, and he called me one day. You know, you know we, we, we had developed a good relationship. And he called me one day and asked me 
if I knew of any places down in my county that rented buses um, because the place up in Frederick County that rented buses would no longer rent to him because every time he went on, you know, on some Klan excursion, you know, people knew that the Klan was in the bus and began throwing rocks at it, you know, breaking the windows and putting dents and stuff in the bus with these rocks. So uh, the comp- the bus rental place, you know, did not want their buses to be damaged anymore. So he figured, well, if he got a bus from some other place, you know, people would know, et cetera. So I said, you know, um, I have my own bus because you know, I have a band and, you know, we, we travel in this, in this bus. So I, uh, I said, I, I didn't really know any rental places, but I'm sure there were some, I could look around for some. And then I said, well, when, when is your, uh, when is your date? And he gave me the date. And I looked on my calendar and I wasn't doing anything that date. And so I said, yeah, I'll tell you what, man, um, why don't you just take my bus? I said, I'll lend you my bus. And he goes, what? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to lend you my bus. You, you can use my bus to carry your clan people to your to your clan march, to your clan event. And um, he says, well, Daryl, you know, I, I don't know. You know, you know, what, you know how, how much do you want for it? I said, no, I'm not going to charge you anything. You know, you, you can have it for free. All I ask is that, you know, you put some gas in it and, you know, and, t- and take care of it. And he said, okay. And he was, like, really shocked. So he and his, um, one of his guys uh, came down to my house, parked their little clan truck in my driveway and uh, with their clan emblem on it on the back windshield and um, took my bus. And then, um, you know, the next day, you know, uh, I, I went to the, uh, to the event and, um, you know, cops were up and down the road because the cops knew about the event. So they were lining the road. And um, here comes my bus with all these Klansmen in it. And they park and they get out and put on their robes and hoods. And then they, they march, you know, about, I don't know, maybe about two and a half miles or whatever, uh, carrying their signs and stuff. And then uh, the bus goes down and picks them up. And then there goes my bus with all these guys. You know, you see these robes and hoods, you know, in the window going by. And uh, they came back over to my house to drop off the bus and uh, pick up, you know, cars and stuff. So um, I invited them to come in, and I'd bought some uh, some beer for them, and about I don't know maybe about fourteen or so of them were here, and we sat around the living room, and I gave them all beer, and they were talking about you know the march and having a good old time. There were two of them though that were in here that they were just freaked out. They'd never been inside a black person's house. Uh, well, I mean, they may have been inside a black person's house, but it wasn't for a social visit. You know what I mean? Um, but here they were inside this black person's house on a social visit. And they didn't know why they were there. They refused to drink anything. They, they sat very stiff on my couch. And they didn't talk a whole lot. And they were, like, glad to be out of there. Uh, but, the, but the other, you know, 12 or 13 of them um, were having a good old time. And uh, they thanked me. We all shook hands. And they left. And um, those two that, uh, that didn't have a good time... Uh, here, they quit the Klan. And then anonymously, the leader began receiving uh, anonymous letters, uh, hate mail to him, uh, calling him an in-lover, and uh, and that he was in bed with Daryl Davis, and Daryl Davis had brainwashed him, that he was receiving the same kind of hate mail that he himself used to send out to other people anonymously. So how did how did this lead, you know, because now we've got like five minutes left, and I really want to hear... How, uh, I, I think, you know, this, there was no one incident in particular, but I think it was a culmination 
of things that, that transpired that allowed him to see the stupidity of, of, of doing what he was doing and, and how people were behaving. And he, he, he began to see the light and he ended up leaving the clan. Wow. And when he left the, cl- the clan leader, and when, and when he left the clan, I got his, <coughs> I got his robe and hood. We're good friends. Um, and the clan in Maryland fell apart. So today there is no more Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. There's a guy who tries to put it together every so often. He tries to hold a rally, but only two or three people show up, and uh, and a couple of them are drunk. So that does not <laughs> <laughs> that does not constitute a clan, you know. No. Um, but uh, but the, you know that does not mean that there are no more racists in Maryland. There are plenty of racists in Maryland, but there's no more organized clan. Well, wow. and what a, what an amazing story and. Again, it's all about relating person to person, just you know, being you know, Helen, kind-hearted and relating. Here's the thing that I see too much of today is how we communicate. This person will go on CNN and talk about that person over there and bash him. So right. that person will go on Fox News and talk about this person over here and bash him exactly. on, on CNN. Or, exactly. And then the following week... The following week, they both will appear on uh, on uh, MSNBC, and they'll be talking at each other. So right. people are either talking about each other or they're talking at each other. No one is sitting down talking with each other, and that's what I do. And that's what led to these relationships. Talking with these people led to them leaving these uh, these organizations and me becoming the recipient of uh, of robes and hoods and another paraphernalia. And and holding the energy, Daryl, always holding the energy of what is possible, sure. always holding the energy of the commonality, you know, as we say in the inner revolution, you know, the oneness, the oneness of us all, and that we are accountable for what we're doing and the impact of what we're doing, and that mutual support, you know, doing what's for the highest good of all, and it's like you live those principles, and and that's what makes the difference, is that you hold that energy in your heart of the commonality of us all. You believe in it and you and you live it. I and, do wholeheartedly. You know, yeah. that's the way I was raised. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And whether we were raised with that or not, you know, I was lucky enough to be raised that way also. You know, and when I was raised in a town where there there were no black people because the only they they had been some accusation and the black man was burned at the courthouse or some it was unbelievable. This is in Missouri. Uh-huh. But my parents we only lived there a short time and my parents were university professors and very liberal. And when I moved to Kansas City, which is half black and half white, this is back in the 60s, I mean, I would go with my best girlfriend who was black and go over into the black part of town, and I was the only white girl in the in the bars of all black people. And I was completely thought, you know, this is just normal. This is just natural. You know, I was, again, I was so naive kind of on the other way. Right. But whether we were raised that way or not, we've got to get over ourselves. And, yeah, and indeed come, we do. And come together, you know, whether we love or hate Trump, it doesn't make any difference. You know, we still have so much in common. We all want love. We all want to be validated as human beings. We all want to have safe homes for ourselves and our children. You know, it's we're, we've got to start focusing on what we have in common. But, but the, way that, the way that we convey that is by talking with each other. Absolutely. Now, my, my, my theory is when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. 
They might be, you know, yelling and screaming and disagreeing, but at least they're talking. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So keep the conversation going. Absolutely. I I just love that example that you're setting. And are you going around the country now uh, promoting your movie, which, you know, we haven't really spent much time talking about? Uh, Yes, I I do that as well as my book. I do that. I, I've been doing that, you know, for years, you know, first with the book and right. now with the movie. So I've always been, you know, giving lectures around the country in between music gigs. So the, the, the movie now is Accidental Courtesy, and it's all about this story for our listeners. And it's on Netflix, and it's a really, uh, really inspiring story to see in person and to see these people and to, uh, to visually engage with that uh, experience of sitting down and talking. So, you know, please, everybody, watch that movie on Netflix. And when your book comes back out, um, Everybody will be waiting for that, too, Daryl. We have three minutes left. I'd like to take a time out briefly and let Todd tell us about next week's story and then come back and and do a final summary with you, Daryl. Okay. Sure thing. So next week, our show is People and the Economy, Turning the Relationship Upside Down, a startling conversation with Beth Green. Last month, Beth Green started a powerful conversation about work, housework, money, and fun. She discussed production, reproduction, and regeneration in a way that blew our paradigm. Paid and unpaid work are one, consumption and production are one, and we've been thinking of economics in an upside-down way, one that keeps us all less powerful and less happy. On May 6th, Beth will be leading an event called No More Divide and Conquer, where she'll discuss the fundamental division the fundamental social division that runs through most human societies, why it exists, and how it has hurt us all. In addition, she'll be talking about the purpose of any economy and where we can go from here. Beth will be sharing all that with us and helping point the way to an approach to the economy that makes sense, is revolutionary, supports our happiness, and blows up the destructive divisiveness of our current social and economic system. Tune in to this enlightening show. I'm very excited about that show. Okay. <laughs> uh, that that is coming up uh, next Thursday, and then the the event that she talks about in that uh, description is this coming Saturday. And I do hope that our listeners will join us uh, at that event. It's so interesting. This whole topic of turning the way we look at things completely upside down. Just as you 10 a.m. to sorry 10 a.m. Yeah, 10 a.m. to 1 a.m. Pacific time. And you yes. can go to our Facebook page or the innerrevolution.org and find out the details. So, Daryl, thank you again for, for being on our show today and sharing My your pleasure. story. Uh, thank you for the work that you do and the uh, courage that it takes to really be related to people, even in the face of their hatred toward you. I, I admire that quality so much, and I hope that you continue to inspire us. And we, we're right with you, trying to do the same thing, to continue to encourage people to relate. So thank you so much. Any final words you'd like to say, Daryl? Well, thank you very much for having me. And I hope you know, we can stay in touch and keep this thing going. I agree. Thanks I so hope much. so. And, you know, if you're doing any events nearby, we'd love to come see you and we'll keep you updated on the events that we're having. And maybe you could join us on 
uh, video conference sometime from wherever you are to, to, you know, just share your experience. And I would love it. Okay. Well, I will uh, stay in touch with you, and thank you so much. And we will see you guys next week in our interview with Beth, and I hope to see some of you this weekend. So thanks again for coming on Interrevolutionary Radio, and we love you all, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Interrevolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Interrevolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.